Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here in the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. Visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our discussion of contrasting liberal versus conservative justices, especially in the Supreme Court. We'll visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, and Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also an author of several books. His latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It is July the 7th, and on this day in 1912, Jim Thorpe won the pentathlon at the 5th Modern Olympics in Stockholm, Sweden. At the time, Thorpe, a Native American who attended Pennsylvania's Carlisle Indian School, was only beginning to establish his reputation as the greatest all-round athlete in the world. That's right, all-round athlete in the world. Born May 28th. 1887 in Prague, Oklahoma, on a Sac and Fox Indian Reservation, James Francis Thorpe was given the name Wahothuk by his mother, meaning Bright Path. In 1908, Thorpe matriculated at the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and joined the school's track team. Two years later, Thorpe tried out for the Carlisle football team, coached by the legendary Pop Warner. At one practice, Warner challenged the inexperienced Thorpe uh, to run the ball against the entire Carlisle team. Thorpe dodged, weaved, and all, outran all 30 of the Carlisle players to score a touchdown. Warner was incredulous and asked Thorpe to do it again. Thorpe did and then joined the team as a running back. He was named an All-American in 1911 and 1912. In the spring of 1912, Thorpe returned his focused track to train for the Summer Olympics. On July the 7th, competing against the best athletes in the world in the Olympic pentathlon, Thorpe placed first in the broad jump, 200-meter sprint, discus throw in the 1,500 meters, and third in javelin throw to win the gold easily. Later in the day, Thorpe uh, failed to medal in the high jump and long jump competitions, placing fourth and seventh respectively. His second medal of the game would come in the decathlon, which he won nearly as easily as he won the pentathlon, breaking the world record in the event. At the closing ceremonies where the medals were presented, Thorpe was introduced to King Gustav V of Sweden. According to the legend, the king said while shaking Thorpe's hand, Sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world, to which Thorpe replied, Thanks, King. <laughs> Thorpe returned to a ticker tape parade in New York City. In 1913, though he was stripped of his Olympic medals because he had played minor league baseball professionally in 1909 and 1910, while he was not on the uh, only only amateur athlete of his era to play for money to pay for his bills. He naively did so using the real name and was easily caught. <clears throat> After 1913, Thorpe was recruited by New York Giants manager John McGraw to play baseball, which he did on and off with middling success at the plate in six of the next eight years. In 1920, he used his fame to help launch the American Professional Football Association, which eventually morphed into the NFL. Thorpe served as the APFA's first president, played for the league professionally from 21 to 26, and again in 28. During his playing career, it was said that Thorpe could punt a ball with force and then sprint down the field and catch it himself. In 1950, the Associated Press named Thorpe the greatest athlete of the first half of the 20th century before his death from a heart attack in 1953. He was known to entertain fans at NFL games by punting balls between the uprights in the end zone from the 50-yard line. The two gold medals stripped from Thorpe in 1913 were returned to him in 1982, 30 years after his death. Jim Thorpe, would have loved to have met him. What an interesting man, what a great athlete. Well, officials overseeing the search for the site of the Florida uh, condominium collapse seemed increasingly somber Tuesday after the prospects of finding anyone alive, saying they have detected no, no uh, new signs of life in the rubble of the death toll now is at 32. Officials announced Tuesday that four additional bodies had been found in the debris, raising the death toll to 32. Up to 113 people remain unaccounted for, though only 70 of those are confirmed to have been inside the building when it was collapsed. 
active search and rescue uh, continues throughout the night. And these teams continue through extremely adverse conditions, of course, because of the hurricane. Crews have removed 124 tons of debris from the site. Well, uh, we're experiencing Tropical Storm Elsa. It was tracking just off of Florida's west coast where it will make landfall uh, today with threats of storm surge, flooding, strong winds, heavy rains, and isolated tornadoes. Uh, Elsa is centered from about 70 miles west-northwest of Tampa and is tracking around nor uh, 15 miles an hour. Elsa briefly became a hurricane on Tuesday evening, but then weakened back to the strong tropical storm early Wednesday. Dry air and wind shear helped erode away the more organized core that is briefly developed near its circulation center. Bands of heavy rain and gusty winds continue to spread up the Florida peninsula. These rain bands could also produce isolated tornadoes at times. We are uh, looking out the window right now. I'm seeing some blue skies, uh, lots of clouds, of course, but I see a little bit of blue sky, and the wind is dying down, just torrential rainstorms uh, earlier today, this morning, though. So I think the Paradise Coast is through the worst and uh, looking for some sunshine. Well, Florida Pl Power and Light plans to build a new solar plant on the outskirts of rural farming town known for tomatoes and citrus. The pro project is the first for Cuyahoga County. Cuyahoga County Commissioners granted the final approval for the multi-million dollar plant at a board meeting on June the 22nd. The board greenlighted a conditional use to allow the plant to be built on agricultural land and signed off on several variances to the county's landscaping requirements, which could have made the project cost prohibitive. County commissioners didn't discuss the project, giving it a thumbs up as part of the summary agenda, which the board typically doesn't talk about. Property records show that the land for the new solar plant changed hands earlier this year with Florida Light and Power paying nearly $5.5 million for the, for the plot. The seller, Baron Collier Companies, have used the land to grow citrus, but the grove had reached its end of useful life, said company CEO Blake Gable. The Naples-based company has worked with Florida Light and Power for years to try and find a site for the solar center in Collier. Florida Light and Power uh, plans to build a new solar center near Immokalee. No one objected to the chosen site over the plans for it. It's a great use, Gable said. The property spans about 578 acres. It sits on east side of the intersection of State Road 29 and State Road 82. Ashley Fogg Schultz, the spokesperson for FPL, said the project is part of the company's 30 by 30 plan to install 30 million solar panels by the year 2030. <clears throat> My question is, what are you going to do with those solar panels once they've uh, reached their useful life? I don't know what's going to happen to all these windmills and solar panels. It's a, it's, it's a big waste. Let's just going back to energy independent using oil, gas, and uh, uh, hydrocarbons. Well, the Biden administration came but short of its goal to have 70% of all adult Americans receive at least one COVID-19 vaccination by July the 4th. So on Tuesday, it rolled out a new plan to take to take vaccination door to door, and hopefully and bolster flagging participation. But even as the White House worries of a virus resurgence because of the more contagious Delta variant, I guess there's a new Lambda uh, variant. The uh, latest plan isn't sitting well with many, particularly among conservative Republicans. Indeed, critics who are quick to pan it as overly intrusive, now we know need to go community to community, neighborhood by neighborhood, and oft times door to door, literally knocking on doors to get help to the remaining people, he said in a press conference uh, yesterday afternoon. So my question is, uh, is he going to have a list of people for does, that who've been vaccinated and not been vaccinated? And isn't it uh, uh, health care privacy? Isn't it uh, play a role in all this? And uh, when does, how come we have people trying to bully us and to tell us what to do? It is very intrusive and it, uh, it's offensive, quite frankly. I can't believe you came up with this idea. Well, a group of five university professors and one executive college director co-authored a paper arguing that more than 500 colleges with vaccine mandates are creating a dangerous and unethical situation for students. We think that these mandates are unethical, the author wrote, uh, chiefly because they indiscriminately require administering an experimental biological agent in the setting of a clinical investigation to a population that is at greater risk of harm from the drug than from the COVID-19. I repeat that, greater, uh, greater risk of harm from the drug than from covid Our advice to schools that have not yet adopted vaccine mandate is this, don't do it. 
The authors warned that universities with vaccine mandates must include sensible, medically sound policies for granting medical exemptions. The authors stated that the medical mandates hold four crucial problems in their professional or medical opinions. First, none of the schools who publish criteria we have examined include the most elementary med- uh, medical ground of all, natural immunity from a previous COVID infection. Second, CDC is not a medical institution. Cornell University said in a support for its resolve to vaccinate immune students that the CDC has recommended the COVID-19 be offered regardless of a prior COVID-19 infection. Cornell's claims illustrates a second crucial mistake made by the schools, namely relying upon the Center for Disease Control and their guidelines as if they were constitute, constitute medical advice, and they do not. And it goes on. This is a, uh, it's unbelievable how we're crossing the line. The government should stay in its lane. They should not be directing uh, our activities, and especially when it comes to health care. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy. He is the chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. To find out more, visit choicesocial.us. That's the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and focused on private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. A terrific, very robust website. So, Bob, uh, last week we started our conversation about the differences and uh, contrasting liberal and conservative judges, especially on the uh, Supreme Court. Does the court usually split along conservative and liberal lines? You know, since uh, 
2000, about half of the court's decisions have been 9-zip, A-1, 7-2, and less than 20% of the cases were uh, 5-4, and half of those were not split along the uh, ideological lines. So during the last two terms, uh, Chief Justice Roberts appears to have met his goal, which is to portray the court as principled and not politicized. Uh, A lot of the key decisions were 7-2. Liberals were happy when the court upheld the right of a gay person to be free from discrimination in the workplace. Uh, Conservatives were happy when the religious organizations were exempted from uh, insurance coverage for contraceptives. Uh, We had Gorsuch and Roberts that occasionally sided with the liberals. And then we had liberal justices Kagan and Breyer who sided with the conservatives. There were 65 cases reviewed this latest term. Only nine of those were along the conventional ideological lines, and only three of them, three out of 65, involved you know what you'd call hot-button political uh, controversies. So I, I think Roberts uh, did succeed in depoliticizing uh, the court. That is so interesting. I, I would, and also perhaps just uh, justices being true to the law, <laughs> which is really That's what they're... That's right, yeah. Not <laughs> allegiant to any political... Um, uh, loyalty, but rather to the law and the Constitution. Yeah, so so, uh, what judicial philosophy should we be looking for in a justice? Or put it differently, what, is the various, what are the various theories of constitutional interpret and, and, uh, and uh, which is correct? Well, the two most prominent theories are textualism, which is favored by the conservatives, and, and the so-called living Constitution, favored by the liberals. Um, Unfortunately, the media consistently misinform the public about conservatives' uh, philosophy. So, you know, you hear over and over again that conservatives believe in original intent. And strictly speaking, uh, that's not textualism. Scalia was, and Thomas is, a textualist. And they rely less on the original intent of the framers and more on the original meaning of the words in the text. And a judge should, they argue, attach primary importance to the words that actually appear in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And Scalia summed it up. He wrote, it's the law that governs and not the intent of the uh, lawgiver. Now, it's true that textualists interpret the Constitution in accordance with its meaning when the provisions were originally ratified, not the meaning that derives from a modern reading of the text. But original meaning is not synonymous with original intent. Meaning focuses on the words. Intent focuses on the values and the objectives of the drafters. Uh, the problem with applying intent, intent, even if you wanted to, is that we don't know which drafters or ratifiers uh, are authoritative. And how do we resolve different views among them? Hamilton and Madison had vastly different views about key provisions in, in the Constitution. And without good records of the Constitutional Convention, uh, we have a tough time determining original intent. So it's the text that governs. Yeah. So I've also heard conservatives are strict constructionists. Is that the same as textualism? Uh, No, it is not. And again, Scalia put it uh, pretty succinctly. He said, I'm not a strict constructionist, and nobody ought to be. A text should not be construed strictly, should not be construed leniently, it should be construed reasonably to contain all that it fairly means. So that if you wanted to interpret a 1789 Constitution, the best tool would be a contemporaneous dictionary, one that was available back then. And it, it wouldn't define the words strictly or loosely, but it would define the words in accordance with their actual meaning uh, back then at, at, in 1789. Yeah. Uh, which kind of brings to mind the whole notion there were no dictionaries, I don't believe, back, back then, which we really owe a lot to Webster for what he cre- cre- uh, created. It's so right. hard, so hard to read that text back in the day because they spelled things in such a weird way. So uh, what about the liberal view of a living constitution? It started with uh, Woodrow Wilson. He, he had this notion that the Supreme Court should be a permanent constitutional convention and revise the document as necessary. <clears throat> by reinterpreting its provisions as, as times changed. 
So, you know, liberals want the Constitution to be interpreted in light of these new circumstances, sort of a malleable document that's adapted to current uh, societal demands. Breyer, Stephen Breyer on the court, uh, describes the, the, the Constitution as one designed to provide a framework for government across the centuries, flexible enough to meet modern needs. And he goes on to say that the, the Constitution needs to have structural flexibility <clears throat> sufficient to adapt substantive laws and institutions to rapidly changing uh, conditions. So you know, that may sound reasonable, uh, but textualists respond that the framers provided an amendment process yeah. if you want structural flexibility. So if the Constitution needs to be updated, it should be accomplished by amendment, not by pretending uh, that the written document doesn't exist or doesn't mean what it says. So, you know, what's the purpose of having a written document if we act as though it's just a piece of paper? And the brilliance, I believe, of the founders is they were able to draft Jefferson and others to uh, a document that was, in my view, almost timeless. I mean, uh, it's, it was brilliant. Indeed. Does uh, textualism effectively freeze the Constitution in time to uh, 1789 and when it was ratified? No, I don't believe that's uh, a fair assessment. Textualists be don't believe that, uh, that, for example, free speech protections don't extend to the Internet. Uh, but the framers could never have conceived of uh, an Internet. Yeah. So it's perfectly okay, according to textualists, to examine the tra trajectory of the words mm -hmm. uh, and uh, <clears throat> apply them to changing circumstances. What's not permissible is to treat the words as if they mean something different than they clearly meant at the time of the ratification. In fact, you know, <clears throat> one reason for the broken judicial confirmation process is the court's gradual shift from reliance on the text to reliance on this living Constitution. So when the, when the text is trumped by uh, evolving societal needs, then judging just becomes politics by another name. So no wonder Congress and these various activist groups are so concerned about the nominees' views on key public policy questions like abortion, for example, mm -hmm. because those views could ultimately become law, notwithstanding that there are explicit constitutional provisions uh, to the contrary. And that's what happens when you have a malleable constitution that allows the judges to act as if they were legislators. And, and yet it's so ironic that uh, you have a, a case like the Obamacare case. That you, <laughs> what were they looking at when they came up with this decision about uh, the uh, taxation issue? Of, uh, uh, the, the, uh, well, I, I think you recall the circumstance. That I'm yeah, Gene, there was Chief Justice Roberts who, who had in mind that, again, he wanted to preserve the institutional respectability of the, of the court, and, and therefore he was willing to overlook the very clear provisions of the Obamacare statute. Amazing. Bob Levy, again, the chairman of the Cato Institute. I encourage you to visit the very robust website, cato.org, C-A-T-O dot org. Bob, always appreciate your commentary. It's not political, it's policy and uh, law, and just really appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up. Andy Joppa. Andrew Joppa is a professor, good friend also, and uh, he's an author of a terrific read, uh, Josefa Savaz, off topic for today's discussion, but uh, he's coming up next. We're going to do that more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere 
that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us uh, Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So uh, you, we usually start our interview with some good news. Any good news? Well, that good news thing is a recent uh, addition just to, to make you feel more comfortable. Uh, so my, <laughs> excuse me, my good news today is sort of a, a schadenfreude type of circumstance. Schadenfreude is uh, the pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortune. So the good news today is the misfortune of the left. <clears throat> what is that misfortune as I see it? It is the dilemma that the left is looking at in terms of the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, Biden is uh, in a continuing state of, of decline. It, it's dubious that he'll be able to uh, make it through his four years or make it through the next two years, perhaps. Uh, they had in the mind when they nominated Harris that he would step into that uh, presidential chair quite, quite smoothly and with, uh, with support. At this point, Harris is getting absolutely no traction. Her own personal office is in total chaos. Uh, she's not even able to create sound bites for a very, very friendly press. Uh, so I think that the Democrats right now are, in fact, uh, debating, and I know they are doing this behind closed doors. Just what do they do in terms of the executive office with Biden in decline and Harris having absolutely no support anywhere? And uh, all records, all uh, polls indicate at the Democrat end that Harris would defeat essentially no one in 2024. So uh, that is the, the good news, at least as a Republican. It's, it's my good news. But I think it's a dilemma for the, for the Democrat Party right now, Bob. It is. And, of course, the uh, Trump, Trump's movement is certainly not diminishing. They've, they're working so hard to try to discredit uh, Trump in every way possible. But, you know, the excitement it still continues at the same level as uh, when he was president. So... Uh, that also makes me smile at their misfortune, Schadenfreude. So, Andy, you know, uh, I wonder, I was just bring up this whole notion of uh, the uh, American Education Association, the largest union in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they've taken a position about uh, critical race theory that is extremely disturbing, and that's certainly not their role. What are your thoughts? Well, actually, it's it's much deeper than just critical race theory, although that's the, uh, the, the centerpiece of their process. National Education Association is, and it's three million members. Uh, <clears throat> recently, their representative assembly has 8,000 members. And here is, one, here is their most profound conclusion. To provide an already created in-depth study that cre critiques empire, white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity, racism, patriarchy, cis-heteropatriarchy, capitalism, ableism, and anthrocentrism. Hmm. Uh, in other words, they're establishing that this is a, uh, a necessary, uh, an important at least, 
uh, agenda inclusion for the uh, for the public schools. And again, uh, they are promoting uh, critical race theory and the 1619 project as things that should be built in to the public school system. And I'll make the point, Bob, and I think it's it's a point I could defend. Certainly, is if we cannot gain control of the uh, the the dogmas being uh, inculcated into our into our public school students, that America is not going to be salvageable if we continue to. Uh, and I'm going to use the phrase brainwash our children, uh, as the Jesuits would have had it, as Machiavelli stated, as almost everybody has acknowledged. Give me a child to the age of seven, and I'll have them for a lifetime. So I think we're looking at a major problem. The uh, National Education Association, the most influential and powerful of all the education associations, is coming out strongly, not only for critical race theory and 1619 Project, but for a whole variety of radical leftist ideas. Uh, I don't know how we can dodge this bullet as time goes on, Bob. Well, uh, certainly they're far, they're far exceeding the, their authority. And quite frankly, I think it's time for the unions to go. I would personally like to see all of our public schools change into charter schools and each uh, school have its own board of directors and uh, allow the process to continue from there. That's impractical. So the next choice would be, you know, making sure that uh, parents do have a choice about where they can send their their, uh, kids. And that would be based on criteria like uh, are they teaching classical education? Are they teaching critical race theory or the 1619 Project? Those are things that I would certainly consider if I were sending my, uh, choosing a school for my, my, my child. That's presuming the alternatives exist, and I hope the, uh, the charter school especially <clears throat> concept will expand. Back in the mid-'90s, I was the lead applicant on, on two uh, charter school submissions. We had everything that... Uh, uh, education uh, could could ask of us, uh, and we were defeated. And I'll, I'll make the point, and I, I can't document this at this moment, but we were defeated by the union activity against us in, in Westchester County. Uh, we uh, In the charter schools, you did not have to uh, be unionized, and, and that was the big incentive to actively and spend an incredible amount of money in defeating my charter schools, Bob. So th- that process has, has gone on. Uh, I would add, just as a uh, inclusion, uh, as long as we're here, back in the mid-90s, I was perhaps, no, I was, the leading uh, public school activist in Westchester County. No story would appear in the Gannett newspapers without me being contacted for my comments. So uh, there was at least an active dialogue that took place from uh, from both the public school's point of view and from the uh, from those that were uh, 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 advocating change in the public schools as I was. Uh, and yet today, I, I don't see much of that. I, I think there are some peripheral comments about the, uh, the public schools. Uh, but again, unless this can be brought, to, uh, brought to, into control, Bob, I, I think America will have continuing and deepening problems. What about the, uh, I see a lot of activism, I'm really pleased about it. I think it's bipartisan, in, in fact, but many parents are up in arms about this critical race theory and about what's being taught in schools. Parents are now aware they had their kids at home for a year, many of them uh, homeschooling and uh, online in order to get their education. And when they, a lot of parents are just very upset about it, and uh, the consequence is they're showing up in droves at uh, uh, school, public school board meetings, and uh they're, they're demonstrating the fact that they're not going to put up with it. Well, again, that is a, an increasing phenomenon. I still think it's a, 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 a slim part of the uh, parental uh, group. Uh, I don't think it is a, is a large, organized process to resist critical race theory and the 1619 Project. Now, it's certainly it can, it can grow in size and, and impact, but right now, uh, these are anomalistic stories that come out of various school districts. Uh, until I see this being uh, supported by the, the actual decision makers in the educational system, Bob, uh, I will regard it as a, uh, as, a, as a crisis of education. So, yes, I, I agree. There are, uh, again, there are growing uh, parental inputs. Uh, but on the other hand, there is no official uh, position within the educational establishment that would push back against critical race theory in the 1619 Project. So, uh, yes, a degree of optimism uh, 
based on your comment, but uh, until I see that larger, uh, more organized resistance, uh, I'm still going to regard it as a as a crisis in education. Bob. Well, it is a crisis. You're absolutely right. I, I, I think the analogy might be the Revolutionary War, a small group of uh, pa- patriots fighting to uh, t- for rights and for uh, freedom. Uh, against uh, all odds, because Great, Great Britain was the biggest naval power and the strongest uh, military power in the world at the time, and yet uh, we prevailed. And how do we do it? We had some people that just had deeply believed that we need to protect our liberty. The analogy I'm drawing is that uh, parents be- deeply believe they want their kids to get a, b- a good education. And uh, it's a small group of people, I, I, I give you that, but I see a movement at hand right now, and I'm hopeful that it's going to get traction. Well, again, hopeful is, I think, the right word. Uh, again, I don't want to become unduly redundant, but until I see this as part of the uh, the uh, official structure of the public school system, I'm still going to remain uh, pessimistic about, about that direction. Um, back in uh, 1993 through 96, again, when I was extremely active, uh, you know, there was a, a significant amount of parental support that I had. Yet, when you asked individual parents about their own district, they loved it. So here we have with that, that dilemma, which was the, the general feeling of a problem, and yet in the specifics of it, uh, there was generally a failure to, to focus on their immediate environment. Now, if that can happen in a, in a larger form than we see now, then there is some possibility of, of, of undoing this. But right now, the public school system is nothing more than an uh, ideological training platform for the, for, for the left. And I think we have to sort of accept that premise, Bob, not because it's necessarily true, although I believe it is. It's because that is the premise that will provide most of the impetus uh, for for pushback uh, if we can get it. So I think we have to understand the dilemma, understand the the end result of that dilemma, which is the distortion of the American culture, which we certainly have seen over the past 20 years or more. Uh, And that's a, that's a, a deepening phenomenon that, that really has to be given more attention, Bob. So, uh, Andy, since we talked, uh, touched on the issue of race and critical race theory, uh, what do you, what would be a good solution for you for some of the race gender issues that we're facing right now? Well, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I, I published a tongue-in-cheek blog uh, last night talking about what what we should do to uh, to deal with these with these issues, both race and gender. Uh, for example, and again, this is tongue-in-cheek. I suggest that all of us should should put down on all of our official records, census, and so forth, that we are African Americans. And I think for, for gender, we should put down whatever we are in the, uh, in the reverse. Uh, that is tongue-in-cheek. But again, I think you have to, we have to somehow uh, overload their particular system, the, the, the bureaucratic system the left has created, with so much nonsense uh, that it becomes un, unmanageable, even for the left. So there are no there are no real answers, and this is a this is again a growing dilemma. What I just suggested again was was tongue in cheek, and yet there, if there is an answer, it's going to be a come from the cloud pivot type of of model where you overload the system to make it dysfunctional. And I think we have to start to overload uh, the Democrat system on race and gender to make it at this point dysfunctional, Bob. Oh, that's an interesting observation. In other words, use the same tools that they're using against society right now. Uh, I think this uh, uh, Charles Murray's latest book, which is uh, Facing Reality, is such a great input at, in this discussion right now. He basically says that, look, uh, there are some f- uh, realities that we need to face, and it has to do with, uh, first of all, uh, violence, uh, different races having different levels of violence, uh, measurable. Uh, these, are, these are facts, not opinions, and as well as IQ. And, uh, you know, basically th- things like affirmative action. To me, what could be worse than uh, getting into Harvard with an uh, IQ of, let's say, uh, 85 or 90, and then being there and not being able to keep up with the other, you know, be able to compete or uh, to, to participate with my peers? Uh, yeah, I think that just be very, very upsetting. Yeah. It's, uh, that, and I think that's the model that we're following right now. That, that's a long-term problem you're describing. In other words, there, there are certainly many great universities where uh, African-American students could go and perform and succeed. But what has happened, and you just described it, Bob, they've been pushed in many cases one notch higher than they should 
in, in many cases, certainly not in all, but one school level higher than they should. And that has caused a dilemma. First of all, the dilemma was their, their failure. But that failure has been turned into a lowering of standards, yeah. even at the elite colleges. So what this thing you just described has resulted in, first of all, it, it started out with failures in the blacks uh, by, in the elite schools. But now it is a deeper problem than that, which is the lowering of standards across the board at even, at even the elite schools. For example, uh, just several months back, Rutgers dropped the teaching of formal grammar structure. So, I mean... Things like that, the dropping of Western civilization, the dropping of American history, yeah. uh, many schools moving towards a variation of abonics in terms of it being an acceptable form of English. So we're seeing this kind of movement uh, accepting a decline in the quality of the student and yielding to that to that uh, lower quality student by lowering the standards for everyone, Bob. So here's a story that uh, I found this morning. The Biden administration announced a plan to expand tuition breaks for future teachers and remove GPA requirements for grant recipients in hopes of uh, providing access to students of color. Now, to... to well, you know, uh, don't well, again. This, this is. A, I'm sorry, Bob. You were going to say. No, I, I. I think we're both in, in violent agreement here that these types of programs don't do anything to elevate the uh, learning for our kids. And, and the eventual outcome for society. And what you just described is true across the entire area of STEM: science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Uh, they have lowered. They have lowered the standards to meet the uh, the statistical norming that they see as critical for the well-being of a society. But when a when a nation willfully lowers the quality of the people in those environments, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It is very doubtful that they can be successful in a in a very competitive worldwide uh, economic structure as we are right now, uh, with China having five times our population and having absolutely no concession to uh, to political correctness. Uh, the future does not look good by that one standard alone, Bob. It's absolutely true. Now, uh, by the way, uh, a little caveat here: I'm not suggesting. Uh, well, let me just put it this way. We have Byron Donalds as our state representative. He's brilliant, quite frankly, in my opinion. He's a black man, and uh, he does a terrific job. So in no way am I uh, suggesting that uh, there aren't black people that should be going to Harvard or to uh, Princeton or any place else, because many should. Uh, but on average, on average, uh, th they shouldn't. And uh, th that's the problem is that they start to set quotas. We want uh, so what some percent of our class to be uh, people of color, and they end up uh, lowering the standards to to uh, make sure they meet that quota, and of course uh, then the the other students that keep on applying, then the, the standards become lower and lower. Quite frankly, for kids coming out of the school. Well, that's exactly what's happening, and we can see the, me, the discrimination being imposed on, on Asian students. Now, the Asians, because of their natural propensity or because of a dedication to, uh, to hard work in the educational area, uh, they, in many cases, dominate the, the enrollment numbers for most of the elite colleges to the point where these schools have had to, in fact, uh, decline very, very, very qualified Asian students uh, to, in fact, make room for, for African-Americans. You made the point, which is obviously true, that uh, nothing we're saying here has anything to do with any individual African-American. Right. Uh, immediately, I would say Byron Donalds is, is, is one of my most uh, favorite human beings, if I might. Right. Uh, uh, Thomas Sowell, Larry Elder, Leo Terrell. I mean, I can go up and down this list and and, and point out uh, many African-Americans that, in general, I find superior to most uh, white politicians, let's say. Uh, so this is not about any individual African-American who certainly are, are, are competent in every single area, but you use the phrase, on average, and that is the key. And so these schools, to meet that on average performance level, have lowered their standards uh, dramatically. Absolutely. And in fact, what Charles Worry points out in his book, uh, Facing Reality, he points out that uh, Asians, on average, again, on average, have a higher IQ than uh, any of the races, uh, including whites, uh, blacks, and Latinos. So, 
And by the way, no, no, uh, no evaluation has ever dismissed that point. In other words, uh, Asians always outperform whites and whites always outperform African-Americans. And again, I'll just for emphasis, make the point again. This has nothing to do with any individual, right. but it does have to do with on average performance. Uh, and I think that unless that's recognized, and I think I made the point on an earlier show, it, when that on average slight uh, IQ variant between whites and African-Americans is put into the economic model, it in, in itself entirely can account for all economic variance between blacks and whites. That simple, uh, slim uh, IQ variance can totally explain all of the economic outcome differences, Bob. Really can. And, you know, uh, and by the way, that was Charles Murray's point in, in, uh, in the bell curve. In the bell curve as well. So I've read his latest book again. It's just really outstanding. Look, I want to talk about the right to bear arms. We have very little time. Is there? Can you give me a, a just a couple of thoughts about that? Well, the right to bear arms. I mean, again, I'm not a I'm not a, a gun fanatic. I, I have weapons since I came to Florida. I, I think what the the public has to recognize is the the existence of uh, of arms in the hands of of qualified citizens or any citizen that is not a uh, insane or a, a felon, for example, I think provides a constant barrier against uh, a government movement towards uh, tyranny, towards any form of oppression, and, and even uh, psychologically, it is a subtle behind-the-scenes type of barrier that always exists. Everyone who is in, in the market to pursue a tyrannical form of government always knows on the other side of their intent is our 400 million weapons in the hands of 100 million Americans, Bob. So that, that barrier is a, is a critical barrier, as I said in a recent blog. I, I can only imagine what America would be like right now if our citizens had no arms to start with. Uh, that is certainly the first thing done by every tyrant when they want to come to power. The first thing they do is they take away the arms of their citizens. Yeah. So we have to make sure that doesn't happen because I think that would be the death knell for American freedom. Uh, well said, Andrew. You're exactly right. I really appreciate your commentary in the show. Again, Andrew Joppa, the book he wrote is Josephus of Oz. I highly recommend it. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. We'll talk soon, Bob. Thank you so much, Andy. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston Space Architecture. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website <coughs> nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, 
Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. I proudly served as board chairman for 15 years, and it's a terrific organization. I hope you find out more by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell. As I mentioned before the break, he's an endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture, a really big player in the space program back in the day, still is. He's also an author. He's written several books. His latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It's a great read. Also writes his column for Newsmax.com. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. I always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Well, hey, I just found this column uh, just recently. You recently published Let's Rebrand Infrastructure Bill as Anti-Suburban Zoning Bill. Shocking the content of this thing. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, the infrastructure bill is, is quite a deal because, you know, originally they, you know, we think of infrastructure as being, you know, streets and bridges and and uh, maybe airports and 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 possibly a backbone for the uh, Internet, things that we depend upon. But initially the, uh, the Democrats attempted to bury everything they could in that bill, which, which just seems to be a, a pattern we're seeing, and uh, when we've heard of some of it, and we've heard that you know the infrastructure was going to be social infrastructure, and it was going to be daycare, and it was the Green New Deal, and everything else that they could wrap into that thing. And the uh, you know the Republicans said, "Well, wait a minute, let's um, let's, let's look at that six trillion dollar buffalo that you tried to you know to pawn off on us." And, Let's really look at infrastructure in terms of things that we, at a bipartisan level, really think of as infrastructure, going back to the basics. And uh, right now it's, it's stalemated, and uh, and I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. There's still bipartisan support for the real infrastructure stuff, and uh, I don't think they're going to get their whole package through. So they have to carve out the you know the you know the stuff that's relevant to the stuff that isn't, and then. The Democrats are trying to push that through, either through reconciliation. That's all the kitchen sink stuff and all the dirty dishes in the, in the kitchen sink that they'll have to try to push through re- reconciliation or try to pass uh, separate legislation for that. I don't think they'll be successful because I think that uh, there are people like Manchin and Sinema and so on, the senators that aren't, aren't going to be able to take that home to their, their districts and justify it. So. Mm-hmm. But even if we carve out, there's there's always more things buried in there. You find it. One of the things that's kind of blew me out of the pile is a two hundred thirteen billion dollar item, which is nearly twice as much as the money that's used for roads and bridges, for uh, something called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Program. You know, the you know the, the letters are A F F H. And what this is, it's, it's a revival of something that was in the original Obama-Biden administration where HUD could come in and say, well, if you want if you want funding for community development or whatever, you have to agree to re- essentially rezone your neighborhood or unzone your neighborhood um, because you may have this, this nice neighborhood that has been principally single-family housing, but you're going to, but, but it's discriminatory because it doesn't have enough low-income houses in it. So if you're going to, you know, so you may, you know, you may have to rezone your neighborhood, you know, the lot sizes are too large, so you need to be able to divide these, lot, these lots up into smaller increments and build, you know, housing. And this was something that, uh, and the, you know the you know the the real uh, 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 original case of this was in Westchester County, New York, mm-hmm. where uh, AFFHA was was established, and and the in the county, this is the village suburban village of Tuckahoe, didn't comply with HUD's vision of of social equity, and they originally agreed, and they said, well, we'll We'll go along and we'll build uh, 750 subsidized housing units over the next seven years for 
in these in these in these uh, these these neighborhoods. And then HUD kept turning, you know, kept moving the goalposts and and required them to build ten thousand more of these hmm. subsidized low income taxpayer funded neighborhoods. And that wasn't enough. And they came back and they said, "Well, you've got to meet these other requirements. You have to." Analyze your 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 statistics and population in terms of housing occupancy and race and disability and family status and whether they proficient in English and all this nightmare of, of requirements. So had bureaucrats could 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 you know basically force the, these neighborhoods to to change and, and get and get rid of single family housing. So it's really a treacherous thing. Now that's. That's back in the that's back in the infrastructure bill right now. Yeah, and people people aren't aware of it. Yeah, and so I'm so glad you brought this to our attention because I recall when uh, Obama was promoting this during his administration, and it gave me chills. I just couldn't believe it was going to happen. President uh, Trump came along and it disappeared, but now it's back. It's right there in the bill, and if in any way they're able to pass it, uh, if in fact the way I understand this, if we if our communities ex- uh, accept. Government funding, <clears throat> I guess it's HUD funding. I'm not exactly sure. Then uh, we lose really local control of our uh, of uh, zoning. They, they, the federal government takes it over. Well, I think that's, that's been a plan all along, and, and everything it seems, all the legislation, none of it is to relinquish control. Most particularly, not in Washington, because everything is moving to the the, the federal government and these. Agencies like HUD and EPA and Interior and so on that are taking you know really control of our lives and 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 maybe the good news is is that they they overreach they push too too you know too hard too fast and people are waking up to the fact that you know that uh, we're losing control over free speech of course and what's taught in the schools and uh, you know and now that. Coachments on neighborhoods, and and there's a tremendous hypocrisy. I mentioned in the article where you look at the you know you look at the Obamas and they have a seven thousand square foot eleven you know twelve million dollar home in, in Martha's Vineyard. I don't think that on twenty nine waterfront acres, I don't think HUD's going to rezone that no. anytime soon. <laughs> and then you look at you know so called lunchbox Joe or middle class Joe Biden. And Jill, they've got a about three million dollar mansion in Delaware Shore overlooking on Cape Hennepin State Park with you know ocean views, and and then there's Kamala Harris, and they've got a she and, her, she and the first man or whatever they had is the second man, second man running uh, in a five million dollar gated you know place in Brentwood, California. You know, it's so it's. It's blatant hypocrisy, and uh, uh, the, you know the country has to wake up to this. Uh, you're absolutely right, Professor, and I so much appreciate your bringing this to our attention. The fact of the matter is, they want big government. They want uh, government to replace God, in a sense, because they want government to be the last choice, the last hope for all human beings. So the whole notion is, how can we centralize everything and and allow the bureaucrats uh, these uh, uh, power elite to to make the decisions for everybody else, and this is just one more blatant example of the hypocrisy and the <clears throat> well the harm. You know, owning a home that's really the American dream here, isn't it? For most people, and uh, uh, to to have somehow some way bureaucrats come in and tell you that your lot's too big or you can't have a home there uh, that, that that just erodes pri- uh, private property in America. Well, there's pushback also in. In some in some of these uh, uh, minority communities, where where uh, you know this affordable housing is being pushed into Soho neighborhood in New York, and uh, and the residents don't want the you know, the subdivision, they don't want the uh, traffic you know issues, and, and and there's been pushback in South Los Angeles, uh, where even a lot of the minorities are. Seeing this as a front to them because they they see it as a way of uh, forcing the subdivision of properties where where then the developers can come in and build a lot more 
places and basically uh, destroy the, the fabric of the neighborhood. So there's, it's not exclusively pushback from hmm. you know from uh, the the posh wealthy. It's just we're, it's it's a it's a it's a theft of our rights. Right. And 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 I think the army we have is is our is our state governments. It's the states that are losing and the Tenth Amendment of the United of the Constitution where where, you know, is these powers are endowed in 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 the state governments and I think that's what's so encouraging. We've got midterm elections coming up where these are gonna be state local issues. And I think the Democrats are going to get a comeuppance. Let's hope so. Again, Professor Larry Bell, author of What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It's a great read. I hope you'll get a copy. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Bob, it's always a joy. Thank you so much. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with uh, uh, Naples former mayor, Bill Barnett. Seton Motley, uh, founder and president of Less Government, will be joining us. Keith Flaw is uh, the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. He'll be with us as well. I hope you make a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.